scheduled introducer is not with us today. He's down in London and soon off to Myanmar, so you have to settle for me. I'm Kevin Fogg in the history faculty at the Center for Islamic Studies at Brisbane's College. Um, and on behalf of myself and Matt Walton, I'd, I'd like to thank you all for coming out. Um, but now it's my very pleasant but challenging task to introduce Dr. P.J. Thum because he, has, uh, he wears an awful lot of hats, even within Oxford. Um, so here he is a visiting fellow at Green Templeton. In Malaysia, he's a senior research fellow at Sunway University. Around here, he's also an associate of the Center for Global History and the coordinator of Project Southeast Asia. Uh, he started his education at Harvard, for which we will forgive him, uh, because he then came to Oxford as a Rhodes, did a second BA in history and politics, and continued on here as a Commonwealth scholar uh, to write his DPhil in history at Hartford, uh, submitting or defending, I should say, in 2011, a thesis entitled Chinese Language Political Mobilization in Singapore, 1953 to 1963. And he stayed very connected to the study of Singapore. Uh, you may have seen or heard his uh, reporting and his uh, blog, his, uh, what do we call this, podcast, um, regarding the recent elections. And that's what we've sort of dragged him out here today to talk about. So will you all please join me in welcoming Dr. P.J. Thun. Thank you very much. Okay, so um, maybe we turn on the lights this time. And that's our show. Nothing tomorrow night as it's cooling off day. Now, please remember to vote. The last presidential election was decided by just over 7,000 votes, but 118,000 people did not vote. So your vote counts. Your vote matters. Your vote is secret, and you have a choice. Remember to vote. Now here it is, your moment of zen. Whoever governs Singapore must have that iron in him, or give it up. This is not a game of cards. This is your life and mine. Whoever, had, whoever governs Singapore must have that iron in him or give it up. This is not a game of cards. This is your life and mine. So he looks terrified, doesn't he? That was uh, Lee Sien Long, pretty much on the eve of the election. And if you watch him up there, he's fidgeting, he's nervous, he's scared. And that's the thing about the election. The PAP were running scared. And uh, let me just turn this on. And you know, if uh, so, if you watch him up there, you know he seems like a man who thinks that his party is headed for a massive reverse or even a defeat. And before the election happened, during the campaign period, that was very much the the mood. At least it was online in the public. People thought the PAP were going to end up with uh, a significant reverse. See, in, in 2011, the Workers' Party won an unprecedented six seats in Parliament out of uh, then 87, and then they won another one in a subsequent by-election in 2013. And so this led many to herald a new normal in Singapore where opposition politics would become part of the, uh, of the ordinary political process, and one which would see you know, this opposition uh, presence in Parliament act as a check and balance on the ruling People's Action Party. So before the 2015 election, pundits, observers, 
people, just ordinary people, people were saying, you know, the opposition could, could win up to maybe 12 or even 16 seats, unheard of. Although, of course, again, only out of 89 seats. So, you know, still a very, uh, very much a minority, right? And in a Westminster system, that doesn't actually confer any power because you only need uh, half plus one seat to actually have pretty much absolute rule, as the previous Tory coalition government showed. Um, and during the campaign period, right, uh, the opposition was greeted by rapturous crowds and the ruling party often seemed on the verge of panic, Right? And the reception given to opposition politicians like Chi Sun Juan, treated like a rock star when he appeared on the stage, right, led many to predict that, yes, you know, the opposition is going to make a breakthrough. Hence, Lee Hsien Loong's last-minute attempt to channel the spirit of his father and, sadly, coming across as very much a pale shadow, a pale imitation of his father. So, going into the election then, you know, this was the mood, and yet the PAP won decisively, nearly 70% nearly of the vote. They even gained back a seat from the uh, Workers' Party and increased their overall vote share. So this was a shock to everyone. This was a shock to all observers who predicted a far tighter outcome. Why? And that's what I'm going to talk about today. I'm going to basically you know, talk about why this election result occurred and defied all expectations. Now, various answers have been proposed. They suggest that Singapore's are accepting, Singaporeans are accepting of authoritarianism, that the opposition is not credible, that the PAP has actually responded to change. So today, I'm going to discuss all these in three sort of big categories. The first is structural factors. The second is positive factors, why people voted for the PAP. And the, second is, and the third is negative factors. Why did people not vote for the opposition? And we need to understand uh, the broader sort of uh, political, social, cultural factors that go into elections and uh, voting in Singapore. So at times I might go what might seem a long way out. You have to remember I'm a historian. Context matters. History matters, right? So those of you who are more, much more poli-sci, you know, you'll have to please uh, be a bit patient with me. And I'm also going to assume some familiarity with Singapore. So I know there's Singaporeans in the room, but those of you who aren't familiar with Singapore, please feel free to stop me if I use one of our million acronyms and you have no idea what I'm talking about. So to start with, structure, right? The structure of uh, elections in Singapore. And to understand the proper context of Singapore's elections, we need to understand one simple fact. Singapore is not a democracy. And this simple fact seems to escape a lot of, especially international observers, who said 70% is a re resounding endorsement of the PAP. But we can't pretend that 70% is a true reflection of popular will when Singapore is not a democracy. We don't have free or fair elections. So keep in mind, I'm not saying the elections were stolen, right? I'm saying that the situation is far more complex and there are far more structural circumstances that compel people to vote a certain way than we assume. And so we need to understand a lot of different factors to begin to get at the truth. And so the first here of these institutional factors is the Elections Department of Singapore, which is under the Prime Minister's office. This allows the People's Action Party to fix the elections in circumstances entirely favourable to it. So the electoral boundaries here, can you guys see? Is, is this okay? Were announced 24th July. The election was uh, 10th September. Oh, sorry. Keep doing that. Um, so 
the electoral boundaries were, were announced 24th of July, right? And they were heavily gerrymandered in favour of the PAP, which knows how each polling district voted in the previous election. So they reshaped the constituencies to suit them to ensure that they got a maximum number of constituencies and no fewer than 20% of voters ended up in a different constituency from 2011. One in five people, right? They didn't move houses, anything. They simply ended up in a completely different constituency. So you have crazy boundaries like, for example, Marine Parade. From the name, you can tell it's a littoral boundary. It's meant to face the sea. And it goes all the way right almost to the center of Singapore. Or uh, Tanjung Paga. Again, Tanjung Paga is down here. So what is all of this? Right? <laughs> and of course, uh, the best illustration might be another huge constituency, Moling Kalang, which was created. This is the 2011 map. Right? And you see, Moulin Kalang dominates the center of Singapore right here. Massive, massive constituency. In 2015, what happens? It's completely gone. Just boom, gone. So this means that for opposition parties, their hard work walking the ground, getting to know the residents over the past four years, just evaporates into smoke. It gets thrown out the window because their constituency either suddenly disappears or the boundaries are so radically redrawn that you know, it, their previous work becomes meaningless, such as Yi Jianzhong in Ju Chat, for example, which was folded into Marine Parade. Right? He had put in a lot of work on the ground, and suddenly, you know, it, from going from a single-member constituency, it was now part of a mega-constituency, group-representative constituency. Or, or con uh, conversely, that your constituency right, includes this whole new huge area that you never accounted for, that you don't know, that you haven't been walking around in, such as Marsiling UT, right? If you look here, Marsiling UT and Sembawang, in the previous election, Sembawang is, shifts all the way over here, Chua Chukang is up to here, Marsiling UT simply doesn't exist. So for the Singapore Democratic Party, which was um, campaigning very much over the past four years in Sembawang, suddenly they found that you know, they are over here, but they have to suddenly include this huge chunk from Chua Chukang as well. And people there were saying, well, where have you been for the past four years? And of course, their response was, well, you know, this wasn't the constituency four years ago. How are we on earth supposed to know? So the group representative committee, a constituency itself, right? For those of you not familiar with Singapore's uh, system, right? Um, over here, you have group representative constituencies. The six seats are labelled in blue, and the five seats here are labelled in purple, and the four are in light green. So these constituencies don't elect one member. They elect between four and six members. Okay, and the point of the creation of the group representation constituencies in 1988 was specifically to raise barriers against the opposition to make it harder for the opposition to find uh, candidates to con contest the constituencies. When the GRCs then came under very fierce criticism for its obvious punitive implications for the opposition, the government then switched tactics and said, oh no, it's meant to ensure minority representation. But in actual fact, there have been fewer minority MPs on average in each parliament after the introduction of the group representation constituencies than before. We ran an average of about 30% minority in the 60s and 70s. Since 1988, we have averaged 20% minority representation in parliament. But of course, the other impact on this is that you have 89 seats which dilutes any 
opposition presence, but in effect, it reduces the number of contests to around 30 because the PAP allows, this allows the PAP to strategically deploy their best candidates, right? what we call the anchor ministers, into different constituencies. So in some constituencies, you have a minister who is very well respected, and then you have three or four people whom no one really cares about. But of course, people don't want to vote out the minister, you know, barring exceptions such as Aljunit, you know, uh, four years ago. But in general, you know, what happens is the minister then brings in four or five uh, other MPs with him or her on their coattails. So this allows the PAP to spread its talent around and more strategically um, fight its, the different electoral contests. And of course, the more the, the, the growth in the number of seats, right? Each successive election has seen more and more seats in, in, in Parliament. And this makes it increasingly hard for the national leadership of any opposition party to effectively find candidates, canvas for ground support, and contest in more constituencies. So Parliament was dissolved 25th August. Nomination Day was 1st September, and Election Day was 11th September. But as I mentioned in the opening video, no campaigning was allowed on 10th September, which is called cooling off day. Right? And this is a mechanism to, you know, which I'll discuss in a second. But in effect, what you have, okay, once the election is called, is you have nine days of campaigning. So the opposition parties cannot begin campaigning or preparing for the election until the election is called, which means there's a massive last-minute scramble to put all the materials together. It's a massive logistical exercise which all the opposition parties have to do. Uh, you know, find printers for their materials, find volunteers, election agents, counting agents, organize rallies, get equipment, you know, find transport vehicles. All this costs a lot of money and they had four working days to do it between the uh, dissolution of parliament and nomination day. Then you come to nomination day, right? And it's again a misnomer, it's called nomination day, but really it's nomination hour. You have one hour to nominate your candidate, if you miss that hour, if something happens, if your form is screwed up, you know, then uh, too bad for you. And in the past, of course, dating all the way back to 1963, what the PAP have done is they've deployed uh, the police, for example, to bring in an opposition candidate for questioning, you know, just for a few hours, just to have a chat, and by the time they get out of the police station, nomination hour is over. So, of course, this didn't happen in 2015. But the stakes are very high and the time is very, very, very short. And of course, the, the, you know, building on this, the PAP has a long history of arresting and detaining its opponents without trial, suing and bankrupting them, or otherwise using a legal and parliamentary system, which is controlled entirely by them to eliminate um, opposition politicians or to smear them. So good quality opposition politicians are discouraged from standing. And so again, to be fair, this effect has weakened somewhat, right? Um, and as the Workers' Party and the Singapore Democratic Party showed in the recent elections, they can attract very good candidates, credible candidates who are sometimes man for man better than the PAP candidates they're running against. But what the PAP still can use is this long legacy of smearing and discrediting its opponents, and especially this was seen in the recent elections with Dr. Chi Sun Juan whom the PAP relentlessly banged on about either directly or indirectly by talking about you know, having opposition candidates with integrity and good character. Uh, Dr. Chi, of course, was found guilty by a parliamentary uh, committee in 1996. Um, 
And uh, again, this was a committee entirely comprised of uh, you know PAP loyalists. Um, and so when the when the PAP campaigned and uh, mentioned this 1996 conviction, what they of course leave out is the fact that he was found guilty through a process which itself is very questionable. And of course, all this is in spite of the elections department specifically saying before the election that candidates are not allowed to engage in, quote, negative campaigning practices. Which leads me to my next point, that the law was not equally enforced. The law stated, for example, that only photos of candidates running in a constituency could be displayed in a constituency. And yet, we see things like this. Lee Sien Long's face was in every single constituency in the entire country. And so when there were complaints, an interpretation was conveniently found that said, oh, the leader of the party represents the whole party and therefore can be considered a symbol of the party which is permitted in the whole country. Right? And of course, the opposition does not have the resources to go and print a photo of their leader and stick it around the whole country at the last minute. Or the police specifically said, candidates cannot appear at the seventh month Gertai shows, right? The seventh month is, you know, um, Chinese cultural tradition where the gates of hell open up and souls escape. And so you have these shows to entertain uh, the souls of the departed, right? So these are called Gertai. And so the police said candidates, political candidates, cannot appear on the Gertai stage. But no fewer than five times, PAP candidates appeared on a Gertai stage or at a seventh month event. Police reports were filed but no action has been taken. Or, for example, here's a <coughs> copy of the uh, re report, the online citizen. So police re reports have been filed, but no action has been taken. <coughs> On the flip side, what you see is um, the opposition has laws enforced against them. For example, this huge truck, right, what people call the Optimus Prime truck, had massive signs and logos advertising the Workers' Party. This is not illegal, right? You can decorate your car, but the police told them to stop. Why? One rule for the PAP, one rule for everyone else. So, coming back then to the day before the election, cooling off day, okay? This is meant to ostensibly give people time to reflect in a sober fashion about the election. It bans parties from campaigning, and it also bans, um, I suppose you could say, partisan media. But in practice, right, it does ban political parties from campaigning. It bans the online media from talking about the election, but it does not ban news reports, which means the Straits Times and other SPH-owned newspapers are free to pump out propaganda in favour of the government. And so it means that the PAP always gets the last word in. If you do a Google search for Workers' Party and PAP, you'll find the first day that searches for the PAP outstrip the Workers' Party in the whole campaign period was cooling off day. Finally, the election practice, the actual practice, you get to the elections yourself, right? And you might think, okay, those, at least those are fair. You get into the, the election station, the polling station, at least that's fair. But actually, there is very significant low-level voter intimidation going on during the vote itself. Because you see, what happens is when you come to vote, each ballot has a serial number on it to prevent forgery. And there's uh, what might be uh, like a checkbook, right, that the polling officer has. And they will tear the ballot 
from that checkbook. So there's, a, there's the ballot and there's a counterfoil, and both have the same serial number. Okay? So in theory, the idea is if there is a huge number of discrepancies, you can actually go through, see uh, the, the numbers, and find out if there's been forgery or ballot stuffing. In practice, what happens is when you turn up, you walk up to the two polling officers, they will, you give them your polling card with your name and your voter number on it, and they will read out your name and your voter number and uh, strike it off the voter register. Then you hand it to the next officer who will hand you the ballot and read out loud your name and your voter identification number. Now this is done because behind you, right, say the two officers are here, I'm the voter, behind you are polling agents, one from each party contesting. Okay, and I was a polling agent, so I saw this uh, you know, up close. And so what happens is the polling agent for the PAP has a voter register, which is very expensive, but they can afford it. And they will strike off your name from their voter register uh, and thereby ensure that there's no duplicate voting. The guy from the, or girl from the opposition, of course, the non-PAP party, doesn't, can't afford to have the uh, voter register. So they will just have to wire a bit, right? You know, what I did was I would just write down the name and voter number Right, so to show that I was also paying attention. But, um, okay, the person from the PAP, right, in practice, is not simply some stranger. Very often, it is a member or even the head of your residence committee. This is the committee which decides, for example, um, you know, whose permits get approved. They hand out funding for different applications. Right? They distribute the government funds, they control the money, they control permits, they control the different public venues that you can borrow or rent out. So the last thing that happens to you before you vote is someone reads out your name and your voter number, and then there's a person in white right there who can affect your life very intimately, who is scratching your name off a voter register and will look at you and give you a stern glare. Right? So in that scenario, right, do you actually, can you actually feel that your vote is anonymous? In theory, right, in theory, this has never happened, I'm stressed, but in theory, if someone got all the ballots with all their serial numbers and managed to match it back to the checkbook where the uh, ballots were torn from, your voter number is written on the counterfoil, then they could trace that voter number back to your name. So in theory, if you were to go through this multiple, uh, you know, operation and somehow get all the ballots and those counterfoils and the voter register, you could find out how people voted. In practice, this has never happened. But you only need to create the idea that your vote is traceable for people, you know, for this climate of fear to be created. And what's more, for that person there to remind you, yes, there are consequences in your daily life. So, going forward from this point then, you know, talking about the residence committee, right? The point, the broader point is that the PAP also controls all the statutory boards and grassroots organizations which dictate how money is spent at the local level. So if I were to ask you as reasonable, intelligent people, how, you know, who is in charge of local funds, right? local government funds? You might go, oh, well, it must be the locally elected representative of the people. And you would be wrong. In Singapore, the money is controlled by the government, by its grassroots organizations. And in 1960, the PAP specifically created an organization called the People's Association as a grassroots organization to uh, connect with the people. It was meant to replace the trade unions, which were then its main grassroots arm. So officially, the People's Association is a stat board. 
In practice, it is an arm of the PAP, and the Prime Minister is its chair. In 1986, the Citizens' Consultative Committee uh, committees were formed. In 1977, residence committees were formed. And these make local decisions. They disperse government funds. They control local resources. So the people on all these committees are appointed by the PAP, and the local MP has no influence over them. So if the local MP wants money, or he, wants, he or she wants to use facilities, he or she doesn't get to decide. He or she has to go to the PA and the residence committees and the CCCs to ask for the money, to ask for permission to use these facilities. If the, PAP, uh, if the MP is a PAP person, they say yes. If it's an opposition MP, they say no. Right? And these committees are grassroots organizations. They have their ears to the ground. They hear from the uh, members, from the members of the public, you know, what are the problems? You know, my block has, the lift has a malfunction, this stuff, grass, uh, you know, uh, rubbish is not being collected, so on and so forth. Right? They tell these committees. And if it's a PAP MP, they then tell the MP who will do something about it. If it's an opposition MP, they stay silent. And then when the resident comes and says, hey, my problem's not been fixed, they will go, oh, this MP is useless. That's what you get for you know, electing an opposition MP. And this is not theoretical. Um, so residence committees have been and asked, instructed specifically not to cooperate with the PAP. Uh, in 1986, um, the PAP created town councils, again, specifically to punish voters uh, who vote in opposition MPs. Now, the town councils, right, on paper, they make no sense because each one is the shape of a, con you know, it follows the same size as a constituency, which changes every election. So, which means your provider of public services changes with every election as well, right? And some constituencies are so tiny and others are so massive. So, you have a very difference, huge difference in the size of town councils. But again, the whole point of town councils is to punish voters who elect opposition MPs by starving money and funds and resources to the town councils. And all of this can be best illustrated by what happened in 2011, right? When the Aljunit voted in the Workers' Party, the residence committees were, in UNOS were told specifically, do not go and talk to your Workers' Party MP, right? The PAP MP was appointed the grassroots advisor in charge of all these funds, and so the Workers' Party MP had to then go to the PAP MP to get access to these funds. And then on the eve of transfer of uh, the town council, uh, facilities owned by the town council were unilaterally and suddenly transferred to the People's Association. So playing fields, badminton halls, you know, uh, rec rooms that were used by the public for years, suddenly just chained up and they can't be used anymore because that's what you get for voting in the opposition. And even more in general, the PAB controls your property and savings in Singapore. 90% of Singaporeans live in public housing in the HDBs. Our wages are automatically taxed to put money into pension funds and for medical insurance. So your homes and your savings are controlled by the government, and under the law, they can take it away. They can take it away, and they have taken it away from trade unionists, from people who oppose the government. So it's a powerful disincentive to vote for the PAP. And of course, uh, you know, the... P the PA, the RCs, the CCCs, right, they provide a steady stream of volunteers. When comes election time, the PAP has a massive army ready to put up posters, to go leafleting, you know, to campaign on their behalf. The opposition, right, have a few brave people and everyone else is terrified. So this leads then to my third point, right, we, under the whole uh, structural um, issues, and that's control of information and the media. 
And for the past few years, and indeed throughout the whole campaign period, the PAP accused the Workers' Party of mismanaging the town council, and they hinted at uh, incompetence and corruption. And the media dutifully reported these charges as news. And this served two purposes. The first, of course, is to question the Workers' Party's competence and honesty. But the second is to remind people, if you vote in the opposition, your town council will get punished, you will get punished. More broadly, of course, control of the media, control of information, allows the PAP to keep the narrative where they want it, to promote fear, right? to promote the, right, the, the idea of the opposition that they want especially via the narratives that you saw during the election of regional instability. You know, you see what happened with China, its stock market slid. Malaysia, it's, the ringgit is worth three times, uh, is, uh, you know, three ringgits worth the, the dollar, right? They're banging on about the uh, integrity, you know, the reference to Dr. Chi. The fear of the freak result, even though we all knew the opposition was not going to win, this constant discussion of freak result, you know, actually convince people, oh, wait, what, am I, what, what if the opposition do win? You know, then we'll have some really incompetent people in parliament. And so they created this whole climate of fear, financial, you know, social, political, fear, you know, fear for instability, right, that drove very much people to vote PAP, to vote the conservative safe option. So control of the media also, of course, has a lot of other implications, but that's, you know, much more broad. I won't go into them here. I think you're all aware of them. You know, they're not specific solely to Singapore. But I just want to highlight one other thing, which is that Singapore doesn't allow opinion poll surveys of voters. It doesn't allow exit polling, which means that no one knew how anyone else was going to vote. So the whole country was in what a philosopher might call the prisoner's dilemma, right? Because... Most, if not all, Singaporeans agree, yes, we need opposition in Parliament. But everyone also knows if we vote in opposition, we will get punished. So what do we do, right? The only way out of this dilemma is if everyone votes opposition so that they get at least 51% of the seats, then we will be safe. But everyone knows the opposition won't win. And in many cases, people don't want the opposition to win. They want the PAP checked by an opposition. So really the only possible outcome is to vote for the PAP, your only possible choice. If you vote opposition, you know you will get punished, so you have to vote PAP, right? And a survey, an opinion poll might help mitigate that because then people know, okay, there's going to be opposition there and there, I can safely vote PAP, they can, you know, there will be more information, people could make a better choice. But in this absence of information, in this prisoner's dilemma, the only choice to be safe is to vote PAP which gives you an idea of why the swing back to the PAP was so strong. Many people may not have intended it. We don't know. There's no information. That's the point. So, these are the um, structural factors. So let's turn to this specific election and talk about why people voted for the PAP. And we start with the most obvious factors, the death of Lee Kuan Yew and the 50th anniversary of Singapore's separation from Malaysia called SG50, Massive Propaganda Nationalist Exercise. And also, to a lesser extent, I think the success of Singapore at the SEA Games uh, in the middle of the year. The sheer amount of money spent to celebrate all these things, right? Especially this narrative of Lee Kuan Yew, of the PAP's development, of the PAP being this bedrock on which Singapore was built and on which its future success relies upon, right? This narrative cannot be undersold, cannot be un the impact of this narrative cannot be understated. Every single rally, the PAP 
candidates hit the exact same talking points. Lee Kuan Yew, SG50, fear, vote PAP, right? Again and again. And of course, all these elaborate promises were made. $50 million, we will have a bus interchange, we will have new hawker centre, new schools. So, you know, again and again, this pop barrel politics. And of course, oh, the opposition have no ideas, no integrity, there could be a freak result, the world's a dangerous place, the PAP will take care of you. Never mind, of course, that these ideas aren't strictly true, right? As many of you know. What's important is that they create the idea, they create the impression, you know, and, and most people don't know that they're strictly true. I think politicians everywhere have a very relaxed relationship with truth. But uh, perhaps the most important factor when it comes to voting for the PAP is that they addressed, maybe not solved, but they addressed to a great degree many of the issues which drove the 2011 vote against the PAP. And the first and the most important is healthcare. And perhaps the most important speech during the campaign was won by Lim Sui Se, which many people later remembered for him uh, indirectly as insulting Malaysia and China. It's the one way he said, oh, thank God we're not Chinese. Heng ah. Thank God we're not Malaysian. Heng ah. But before that, before that, he says something which becomes really, really important. So I'm going to play that for you now. Oops. Please start. Oh, yes, there we go. Many people say, in Singapore, healthcare costs are expensive that you can afford to die, you cannot afford to fall sick. As I see, as I think. Correct or Correct only a few years ago. So you see, he starts up by admitting that there's a problem, massive, massive problem. Healthcare costs were way out of control. This is, this is crazy, you know, you don't often get a who starts out by admitting that they cause a massive, massive problem. But look what happens next. Since then, we have managed your life. We have Pioneer Generation Package, PGP. Your 20,000, 30,000, after government subsidies, will drop to about 8,000 to 10,000. If you are managed you, your burden will drop 8,000, 10,000 by about half your 4,000, 5,000 will drop to about 3,000. It will cover you for life. If you want to have a pioneer generation, you'll be able to enjoy medical life for free. For those of you 71 to 75, government give you $400 a, a year, 76 to 80, $600 a year, net net. How much? I said about 100 to 200. Oh, they know 66 to 70 say, what about us? Net nets are huh? uh, half price. Us, too young to be pioneer generation. Not to worry, since January this year, additional medicine. Two thirds of Singaporeans will receive permanent discount from the government. And like before I go to the hospital, I got to see a lot, the doctor a lot of times, you know, polyclinic, SOC, also cost money. I said, no problem. So if you have uh, IC, blue card, orange card, plus PG card, $100, 50 $25, $12.50. How <laughs> Now you can see, you start off with an operation costing $20,000 and he cuts it all the way down to free, or $100 or 
dental appointments, you know, you get a crown for $200, $300. It costs $10 if you are in the PGP. And it was a huge scam because a dentist could only claim one tooth under the PGP. So what the dentist was doing was say, okay, I fixed this tooth for you. Your other tooth, go to my friend over there. He can also claim PGP $10. And so anyone above 65 was getting your whole mouth redone at $10 a tooth, right? This was a massive, massive, massive giveaway, right? And this was by no means the only one, but it was, it was the biggest. So, it's, if we look at the budget, right, how is the government paying for this? This year they announced that they had a record uh, tax collection, $46 billion worth of income taxes and overall operating revenue of 64. But if you look down here, I don't know if you can see, $6.67 billion deficit despite a record revenue collection. Why? Because if you look at the numbers here, right, in previous years they were spending, you know, this is a very opaque system, but 300 million on healthcare, okay? In a country where our budget is, you know, 40, uh, 64 billion, and we were spending about 12 billion on defense, we were spending about 300 million on healthcare, and suddenly, <coughs> Right here, $8 billion into the Pioneer Generation Fund last year. $2 billion per year in giveaways over the next four years. <laughs> I thought you were asking a question. So that is where you know, your tax money is going. And of course, this isn't the only thing. The government have uh, changed the way MediShield works. There's compulsory participation for all citizens and PRs, um, which is very, very actually very sneaky because MediShield Life, right, if you're a citizen or PR, you have to pay even if you don't live in Singapore. If you live abroad, you don't take part in Singapore, you don't need Singapore healthcare, you still have to pay. Which means that the people who are bearing a huge burden for the cost of MediShield Life are people who can't vote. Because in order to vote, you have to be in Singapore at least 90 days over the past three years and be a citizen. But who on earth can go back to Singapore 30 days every year, right? And even if you get to vote, if you can vote, you need to go to a consulate or an embassy. If you live in Kansas City, where are you going to go? You know, if you live in Aberdeen, are you really all going to go all the way to London to vote? So out of 300,000 overseas citizens, 4,000 cast their vote in 2015, which means that the PAP are taxing without representation. Now, with the other big policies that caused trouble included the cost and availability of housing, which the government tackled to, uh, with measures to cool the housing market to prevent flats being rapidly flipped. They embarked on a big building boom. Immigration, there have been crackdowns on foreigners, fewer PR and citizen applications process, much, higher, much harder for businesses to hire foreigners. Uh, strengthening of citizen rights and privileges uh, via the, the you know, PRs and foreigners. Transport. Now, of course, there is a you know, um, massive problem. Huge breakdowns, right? Massive, massive breakdown every couple of weeks, minor breakdowns every couple of days. And they couldn't do anything about that quickly. So what did they do? They fired the transport minister. In fact, they fired the two previous transport ministers. Um, in January, a survey by the online citizen asked voters, which PAP MP would you like to see get uh, voted out of office? And the top three right here, Ma Bao Tan, Ritak Yu, the transport minister, Wong Kan Singh, all three were shown the door before the 2015 election. So maybe the PAP is reading the online citizen, right? Mm -hmm. But it was, uh, you know, there was um, a 
you know, it's impossible to say because, of course, they, they made all the right noises. Oh, this person is retiring, spend more time with his family, etc. But it can't be any coincidence that the three most hated ministers all were, were politely, you know, kicked out before the election. And, of course, Raymond Lim was also, previous transport minister, was also asked to leave. Now, what is the upshot of all this? And I think the most important thing to, to, you know, to observe is that one of the PAP's claims has always been, you know, we have this monopoly of power, it allows us to think long-term, right? We can prioritize long-term planning, responsible policies <coughs> over short-term demand, short-term political cycles. This is historically untrue, of course. You know, the PAP uh, got into power and stayed in power initially through very st a strong populist campaign, strong populist policies, a massive social welfare network which it built up, before then abandoning it uh, when it strengthened its grip on power in, from the 70s onwards. And this is a narrative invented in the 1980s to justify its increasing repression that it started introducing from the mid-1980s. Right? But now it's also been shown to be currently untrue. MediSafe, MediShield Life, the budget deficit. Right? In the last few years, its policies have been unashamedly populist and short-term. Deficit spending, what happened to this great reputation for fiscal responsibility? In fact, one of the rally speeches which had the least attention, which might be the most important, was actually when Thalman said, oh, yes, we need to spend more money on healthcare, so we changed the cons constitution to allow us to tap into the reserves. No one noticed this. The media didn't cover this, right? The, the finance minister should not be allowed to change the constitution just like that in order to spend more money and, you know, tap into the reserves. But this happened. And all, this, all these policies happened in spite of the fact that PAP knew it was going to win. There was no question it was going to win. The opposition, you know, dream scenario, 16 seats. You know, wildest, wildest dreams, 16 seats, right? Maybe in fantasy, utter fantasy, utter fantasy land, 28 seats. But there are nine, you know, 89 seats. The PAP knew it was going to win. So if it was really responsible long-term, it would have stuck to its guns. It would have said, okay, you know, it doesn't matter. You want opposition, sure. But we, in the long-term, will be proven right. We will carry on with the policies. We will not change course. We will, you know, keep on going. But instead, you know, they resorted to populism. And indeed, you know, because of this, I think the big winner of the election is actually DPF Daman, who, you know, as finance minister, he has presided over a shift leftwards of the Singapore economy and uh, an expansion of social welfare, and I think he's undoubtedly the most popular politician in Singapore today. So, okay, finally, we come to the negative factors. Why did people vote against the opposition? Uh, and I think the first thing to point out is that, um, you know, sorry, sleep over this down and here. Opposition, it, it's not a repudiation of the opposition, right? Uh, the swing of 9% fits in with a historical trend. The last four elections, the swing has been 10%, 8%, 7%, 9%. So our election system only dates to 1988, and it's changed significantly every year, so it's hard to compare. But I think it fits in with um, you know, this recent historical trend where the PAP's vote oscillates between 60 and 70%. If we look at the number of seats, right, which is more important in a Westminster system, the Workers' Party defended all six seats it won in 2011. And I think we can safely say, especially if they win again all six seats, that this is the baseline. We will never have an all-PAP parliament again. We will definitely have some opposition, probably around six seats minimum in future um, parliaments. 
Now, the commentator Alex Au, Yawning Bread, made a very important observation here as well, because he said not all the opposition is the same. This is from his website, where he points <coughs> out that the swing of 10% uh, was heavily against the NSP and SPP, right, and other marginal parties which were seen, which were taken less seriously and which had less credible candidates. Whereas the Workers' Party and SDP, who had very credible candidates, only lost about 5% of their vote. And if you look at critical uh, constituencies, right, key constituencies including uh, Aljunit and Holland Bukitima, right, especially Holland Bukitima, where SDP leader Chi Sun Juan ran, they only had 912 fewer votes. The overall votes, the absolute number of votes in Holland Bukitima, the, big, the percentage changed a lot because of gerrymandering. But if you look at the SDP's share of the votes, they only lost 912 votes. So the opposition's campaign right, was um, made on the argument that electing the six Workers' Party MPs into Parliament in 2011 had caused the PAP to shift to the left and address people's concerns. And this is true, and I think people recognize that. But then the opposition argument continues that, okay, you need to elect more opposition to produce further checks and balances, to produce further, you know, better policies. And this, I think, is the problem because shouldn't you reward the party which actually did something for you, you know, rather than the party uh, which uh, didn't, right? That's, that's, you know, I think that in itself, um, you know, that sort of attitude is... It's important to, you know, I think that's how people would respond to, to, to change, you know, to thank the party which represented them, right? It's a superficial attitude, but uh, there's a certain sense of justice about that. <coughs> Second, right, you run into the problem, as I mentioned previously, who is going to take one for the team and elect opposition MPs knowing that you are going to get punished, that your town council is going to get starved of funding, that your public services are going to degrade, Third, how much opposition do you need for a check and balance? Uh, in a Westminster system, as I said, the ruling party only needs 50% plus one to have absolute power. But the most the opposition could have in a dream scenario, as I mentioned, 16 seats. Is that enough? Is that too much? Is that too little? You know, how many do we need? Fourth, um, this was also pointed out, I think also by Alex Al, that in the past, the people's voice in, uh, to the government was only to opposition MPs in parliament. But the PAP have done a really, really good job with social media, especially in the last four years. People can now uh, message their politicians, their local MP on Facebook, right? And they've actually gotten very good at responding. So the, the problem, of course, is that this is the only viable strategy for the opposition. What else are they going to say? They don't have enough people to form an alternative government. So instead, they have to take credit for the government's shift, for all the good things that happened in the last four years, and campaign on that. That was their only play, and it was heavily flawed. So some opposition parties did try and campaign on immigration, right? In 2013, perhaps the nadir of the government's popularity was a huge rally at Hongren Park on immigration. And, uh, but as I mentioned, the government has taken significant steps to address this, but more importantly, I think the xenophobic tone of candidates from like Singapore First, the Reform Party, it turned a lot of people off. Singaporeans are descendants of immigrants. We're not xenophobic. I think we recognize the problem is government policy, not immigrants. 
Uh, some have argued that new immigrants, new citizens, people created in the last couple of decades, last sorry, last couple of years, voted for the solidly for the government, and there is some truth to that. You know, as a polling agent, I saw a lady who was clearly recently from China, spoke with a very strong Beijing accent, who asked the polling officer which one's the government party and which one's the opposition party. <laughs> and of course, the polling officer cannot say. They, they can only say, okay, this is the SDP, this is the PAP, and she, she was like, yes, but which one's the government party? I'm oh, sorry, I can't say. So she goes to the polling book and she stands there and looks. And so I was watching her and I look away. Five minutes later, I look back and she's still standing there, you know, trying to figure out which one's the government party. So there is a truth, you know, that I think new citizens vote staunchly for the government. But first of all, studies have shown maybe 2% of voters were new citizens, right? That doesn't account for the swing. But more importantly, new citizens are still citizens. You can't discriminate. If someone is a citizen, they should be treated equally as all other citizens. Right? You, you should be campaigning for their vote, not campaigning against them. Which leads me to the bigger point, I think, about a lack of dis, uh, discrimination, differentiation between the opposition parties. If you read the manifestos, there are fundamental differences between the Workers' Party, the SDP, the Reform Party, you know, and so on. But I think most people didn't read manifestos, and in most people's minds, the opposition is just that, the opposition. And this wasn't helped by the fact that the opposition agreed not to run against each other in nearly every constituency. There was only, I think, one constituency, Macpherson, where the opposition parties actually ran against each other. But this lack of differentiation <coughs> creates this impression in a lot of people's minds that the opposition, you know, is one and the same. And so it becomes easier for the government, for the PAP, to smear all the opposition parties, tar them all with the same brush, you know, for one party's uh, xenophobia to then, um, to then be, you know, affect the way all parties are seen. So of the two credible parties then, the SDP and the Workers' Party, <coughs> right, the SDP has consistently made a bigger effort to differentiate itself on issues as, uh, you know, as a party of social justice. So people know what the SDP stands for. But the Workers' Party, right, it has previously sought to differentiate itself on more on competence than on values and policies. So even though its manifesto in this election did make a clear difference from the PAP manifesto, which actually is, the PAP manifesto didn't say anything, so it's not hard to differentiate, but it did make a clear difference from the past, from the PAP policies, right? But again, most people don't read manifestos, and I don't think people had an idea that the Workers' Party had shifted left. The Workers' Party has this reputation caricatured as PAP light. It's 10% less than the PAP. You know, what the PAP wants, the Workers' Party will go, yes, we agree with the general principle, but it needs to be less severe, 10%. What nobody realizes is that the PAP proved itself capable of shifting 10% to the left, thereby taking away much of the ground that the Workers' Party sought to occupy. You know, I think. You know, their reasoning, of course, is that, okay, PA, people don't like the PAP, but they want the PAP, they want the security of PAP, so we will be the PAP light, right? And the 2011 election seemed to bear that out. But, you know, the PAP has shifted left. And, of course, um, the PAP undermined the, this idea of workers' party competence uh, through the, you know, um, its control over taxes and the grassroots organizations or using the law, you know, to sabotage the workers' party town councils, thereby calling their competence and integrity into question. In reality, the workers' party town council did nothing wrong. They didn't do anything that the PAP town council hadn't also done. But the PAP relentlessly hammered away at that. So, 
in sum, right, and I will finish here, the choices in front of the voter, you can see the choices, right? The structural aspects, knowing that you are going to get punished, that the PAB controls everything, so you'll get punished if you vote opposition. The positive uh, incentives for the PAP, knowing that, okay, the PAP has uh, made significant changes, they're throwing so much money at you, you know, anyone above 65 had so much money thrown at them. And of course, the opposition, what actually can they do, right? Six opposition MPs, 12, what difference does it make if we have, you know, six opposition or 12 opposition? So between these three factors, then, that explains, the, I think, the overall uh, swing of the election. So it's not a vote for authoritarianism, but really it's a hugely complex situation that brings me back to one of my very first slides. We have to remember Singapore is not a democracy. Thanks very much.